Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, thank we thank you again for the privilege we have of knowing you through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the work of the Spirit. And we thank you for every opportunity we have to reflect upon your word and how it informs us and teaches us, instructs us, corrects us, rebukes us. And we pray that that will be true tonight as we look into it, that we might be challenged and helped and um, corrected and all these things so that the work of the spirit and sanctification continue can continue in our hearts and lives. Thank you for the safety you've given our folks, and we pray you'll continue to heal Liz and uh, pray for Laurie and uh, others who are have a chronic condition, various physical problems that they're dealing with. We pray your grace in their lives and healing in their lives. We ask your your goodness and blessing to us tonight as we look into your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's look at our quiz here. And um, number one, the treasure in jars of clay um, that Paul refers to in um, 4 7. Uh, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us, refers to our possession of the glorious gospel of Christ. True, obviously, the, the gospel and the benefits, the regeneration, you know, all the, all, the, all the results of salvation. We have this uh, in jars of clay uh, in order that, uh, as Paul says, the we might be witnessed to the, and we might display the, the power of God and so forth. And, it, and, and the intention might be on the gospel and on Christ, not on us. Number two, Paul's reference to caring about the death of Jesus and being given over to death for Jesus' sake speaks of the perilous hazards Paul faced every hour and every day. And that's uh, true. Uh, remember we said that the word death there is not the usual word for the death of Christ that we read about uh, in, in, the, in the epistles especially, but that Paul uses, but speaks of a dying. And so he says we're caring about the dying, and he's referring here to these hazards that he faces. Remember he says, I face death every day. King James says, I die daily which is a common, one of the most misused verses in scripture to talk about dying to sin daily, but that's not, when Paul says, I die daily, that's, the NIV translates, it's, you know, I face death every day. And that's what Paul is saying. His uh, ministry is so perilous and so difficult that he faces death. And um, that's his point here. Number three, Every difficulty and hardship we face can rightly be described as light and momentary. Well, certainly Paul does that, doesn't he? Uh, so uh, that's an amazing statement by the Apostle Paul that for our light and momentary troubles, uh, 
when we look at them, you know, we think they're pretty difficult. They're pretty hard. And they last for a long time. Um, that, that they're, they're not light, they're hard and they're not short. They're sometimes very long, but the point is compared to eternity, and that's a difficult perspective, but it helps us if we can, if we can think a little bit about eternity and the eternal perspective that uh, what we do face is light and momentary compared to the glory and what we'll experience in the future, what we have to look forward to. It's hard, difficult to do that, but it's, it's very helpful if we can reflect on that as much as possible. For Paul calls our resurrection body an eternal house in heaven. An eternal house in heaven. Yes, he does. You know, you might, when you read 5.1, for we have, uh, we have an, a, an eternal house in heaven, you might think that's referring to sort of like our home in heaven, our mansion in heaven. <laughs> but no, uh, he's talking here, he's, he's using the metaphor of a house or a tent, uh, if this tent that we live in, this body is destroyed, then we have an eternal house, a home, not just a temporary tent, but a permanent resurrection body, as he goes on to say. Five, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we should live by faith and not by sight. Well, that's false. Paul does not say in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we should live by faith and not by sight. He does not say that. He doesn't say we should live by faith. He says, for we live by faith. We do live by faith. Now, remember I talked about this last time that, yeah, it's true. You could say we should live by faith and not by sight. If you understand that to mean uh, we should trust God, his promises, not necessarily our circumstances, what we see around us. We don't disregard our circumstances and what we see around. That's part of God's providential working in our lives. But we don't base all that we do on our, what we see and what we can, you know, we, we have to look at scripture by faith and so forth. So in that sense, we should, but that's not Paul's point there. He doesn't say we should, he said we do. And the point Paul is making there is he's, he's trying to explain verse six, where he says, uh, we're at home in the body right now, and thus we're away from the Lord. But that's not a terrible thing because we live by faith. We still have fellowship with Jesus, but it's by faith. It's not by sight. One day it will be by sight and we'll be at home in heaven will be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And that's what gives him, uh, that's, that's one of the consolations he faces that when we die, we go to be the Lord. Even though we wait for the resurrection body, we'll no longer be living by faith. We'll be living by sight in that sense, you know, in the sense that we won't. We'll actually be able to see the Lord and have that personal fellowship. All right. We're looking at, again, this very large section, Paul's overall defense to the Corinthians of how he's been conducting his ministry, and that involves so many things, his visits, 
his letters and so forth. And uh, he's talking here about the character of his ministry, explaining it and so forth. And uh, he's been emphasizing this bodily weakness in contrast to his enemies. As we'll see as we go along, more references to them, these opponents outside, people from the outside who've come into Corinth, actually. Not only had Paul opposition when he went over to Corinth in that uh, painful visit that we talked about, but he also had outside opposition, false apostles, he calls them, uh, later on. And so uh, he's suggesting that contrasting his ministry, it was, <laughs> it was performed in a lot of bodily weakness. And so he's dealing with that. And right now in chapter five, he's talking about, you know, even if I should die before the rapture, I face death every day, Paul says, but even if I should die, I have great hope as a Christian. Uh, I have this hope of the resurrection body. I have this great hope of our, our confidence that I'll be in the presence of the Lord and so forth. And now um, in uh, chapter five, verses nine and 10, he talks about a, a certain incentive for what he's doing now. And that is the fact of coming judgment. So he says in verse nine, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So I say here, the truths of verses one through eight, especially the expectation of face-to-face -face communion with Christ have profound consequences for Paul's behavior. So he says in verse nine that his constant ambition is to please Christ. And, and, and that, Ambition is the outcome, is, 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 the, is the result of his awareness that uh, death would terminate his exile from Christ and would inaugurate his walking in the realm of the sight. He would be in the presence of the Lord. Um, and so the more we, you know, entertain this hope, the more we think about this hope of person-to-person -person communion with Christ after death, the more we're naturally going to aspire to be accepted in his eyes both now and after. We're, you know, this is going to affect us. This is going to affect our conduct and our lives and so forth. And that's what affected Paul. Um, he says uh, in, in a lot of verses, he talks about this, like Galatians 1.10. Now, am I trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were trying to please people, I would not be the servant of Christ. So Paul says, it's my aim, as he says here, to please God and Christ in my ministry. Ephesians 5.10, he 
exhorts us to find out what pleases the Lord. Philippians 1.20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. Colossians 1.10, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. And this is all in the context of what Paul is urging them to do. But the point I'm emphasizing here is Paul's goal was to please the Lord, to live a life worthy. First Thessalonians 4.1, and as for the matters, other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you're living. And now we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. So in verse 10, Paul now gives, you know, an important reason for, for striving to please Christ as a, beyond just the fact that we will one day see him face to face. That certain meaning away from the body, meaning away from the body and at home with the Lord, verse eight, means we also face an accountability to Christ, verse 10, requiring our compulsory attendance before the tribunal of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ that Paul talks about here is also mentioned in two other places by Paul, Romans 14, 10 through 12, and in the first epistle, 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 15. Sometimes called the bema, the Greek word, we, use, we pronounce it bema, but that's the word for judgment seat. So it was a secular Greek word that was used for the place of judgment, like the court. Uh, was the Bema. Um, and notice uh, when we look at a text like 1 Corinthians 4, 5, we see that it involves not merely an appearance in the court of heaven, but sort of a, a, a divine illumination, uh, an exposure of uh, what has been hidden by darkness, an exposure of aims and motives. Paul says, therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. He's thinking in the context or he's, the, the Corinthians are judging him and his ministry. And he says, you really can't give any ultimate judgment about all of these things until the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So not everybody who is serving Christ is serving Christ for the proper motive. And all, none of us have pure motives. You know, there's the problem. We're tainted by sin. None of us have pure motives, and it's not always possible to know the motivation, you know, but ultimately that will be known by Christ. And Paul says Christians who have gone through this, we're told here in this text, will receive an equitable and full recompense, will get what is due us. Now, I say here the judgment seat of Christ is only for believers. It's true that all men are accountable to God, their maker and judge. 
but unbelievers will be judged, of course, of what's called the great white throne. So uh, those who have, who, those who are not saved, uh, they will be resurrected and judged after the millennial kingdom, Revelation 20. And they will be judged according to their works and so forth to, to, to establish a degree of punishment. But that's not for us. The judgment seat here that we're talking about is concerned with the assessment of works and indirectly of character, not with the determination of destiny. We're concerned about rewards here, not status. So it's you know, an amazing thing that we're saved by grace, not anything of our own doing. But God uh, has determined that he will reward us for our faithfulness to him. I mentioned here, our sins are not directly brought up at the judgment seat since they were judged at the cross. So Christ suffered the penalty for your sins and my sins. And so there's, there's no penalty for those and will not be judged for those. That will not be an issue at the judgment scene. But there will be shame over loss of reward. 1 John 2, 28, and now dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed. New American Standard says something like, not, not draw away from him in shame before him at his coming. You know, it's often thought of, you think about Peter who denied the Lord and he kind of went out and wept bitterly about that when he realized that, when he got the, you know, really understood what he had done. So we can have that kind of negative reaction, I think, at the judgment seat. One way to think about this, uh, some people have compared it to a graduation ceremony in a small way. This might help us in the sense that, um, you know, at a, at a high school graduation or maybe a, a college graduation or whatever, um, you, you may feel some regret uh, at your graduation. You may say, boy, I wish I would have done better. <laughs> wish I'd have studied harder. You know, there could be some regrets, but the overwhelming uh, sensation will be joy. You know, I made it, I graduated. And that's, I think, what we'll see at the judgment seat of Christ. Well, let's look then at uh, number six here. We're talking about the character of Paul's ministry. Uh, he says, the ministry persuaded men from a proper motivation. He's talking about his ministry. And he did this from a proper motivation. As I say, it's possible to, I mean, one of the sad things we, we you know, read about in Christianity and even evangelical Christianity is the fact that um, somebody's got their sound on. Class. <laughs> somebody's got their sound on. I'll have to go back here. Sorry, I'll have to go back and mute you. Uh, I have to mute everybody again. Uh, let's see. All right, I got you muted. Let me share this again. Um, 
Let's see if we can get this back up. Okay. So I was saying one of the sad things about evangelical Christianity, even evangelical Christianity, is that, you know, we see cases where, you know, ministers, gospel preachers, and others, uh, we discover that their motivations are not what we thought they were. And they were doing things for their own uh, for their own uh, acclamation, to, so people would think well of them for money, for various motives that are not pure and not proper. And so that that comes up, and Paul is dealing with that because he's had some accusations about him. And so he's we're talking here about the motivation of his ministry, verses eleven through fifteen. Here, first of all, he says, verse eleven. Since then. You know, since then, the judgment seat of Christ and all I've said, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. We, we, we understand the seriousness of this. We know what it is to have reverence for the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. As I say, the, the fear of the Lord is, you know, reverential awe that uh, Paul had for Christ and his future judge. Because Paul was keenly aware of his personal accountability, he endeavored to persuade people about the gospel of Christ. Uh, this was true of his mission. As he says here, uh, what we are is plain to God. God knows. God knows Paul's heart, what he's doing. But he wanted the Corinthians. He realized the Corinthians needed to come to the same proper understanding of his apostolic status, of his conduct, of his ministry. He says, I hope it's also plain to your conscience. You know, uh, you know I hope you understand things as I understand them. Verse 12, for we are not trying to commend ourselves to you again by all that I'm saying here. I'm not trying to commend myself, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. This is a tough word to translate, this word pride or to boast. It means to come to our defense, to have a proper opinion of us, to, to uh, as we'll see here, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what's in the heart. Uh, Paul insists that these assertions about himself in relation to God and men should not be interpreted as another attempt of self-commendation. Number three, one, are we trying to commend ourselves again? No. Instead, he wanted the Corinthians to have the necessary ammunition with which to defend his apostleship. So Paul had started the church. These people had been saved through his ministries, labored among them. And now he's getting this opposition. Outsiders have come in and so forth. They're questioning what Paul is doing, his motivations, and so forth. And he says, you know, this should be plain to you. You've seen my life. You've seen my lifestyle. And they ought to have sufficient pride in him to have undertaken uh, his defense, you know, on their own initiative. They had sufficient evidence, their personal knowledge of his legitimate apostolic ministry, their knowledge of his devoted service. They understood all that. Those who oppose Paul are described as those who take pride in what is seen 
rather than what's in the heart. That is those who pride themselves on outward appearances. Uh, these super, these false teachers that we're talking about here, no doubt made, you know, superficial claims to, of superiority over Paul. They claimed they were superior. But what was important, Paul says here, is what's in the heart, not outward appearances. And we've talked about how Paul's outward appearance and his ministry contrast greatly with these flamboyant uh, kind of preachers who have come in. Uh, verse 11, verse 13, if we are out of our mind, notice the quotation marks here because the NIV is taking this as an accusation that Paul is repeating. If we're out of our mind, as some say, and there it is, it is for God. If we are in our sight, in our right mind, I'm sorry, it is for you. Uh, it seems that Paul's critics had accused him of being out of his mind. He says very clearly, but Paul says, even if that was true, nothing he does is for his own benefit. You know, it's all for God's glory. It's for, it is for, it is for God. He says, I got of God. It is for, it should be, it is for God. All is for the Corinthians. It is for you. So it's for God I'm doing this. It's for you. I'm not doing this for my own benefit. And that should be obvious to you. You know, if I was, I would be raking in the praise and the money and I wouldn't be living this lifestyle. Verse 14, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul now tells us the reason why, the four that begins verse 14 here, uh, why he could not live to please himself. Christ's love compels us, he says. The love of Christ showed us for for us compels us to love and serve him and others. That motivated Paul. When he died, when Christ died, death, sin's penalty was paid, and we died to the self-life, the old life of sin. Now through his resurrection, we live to please him by serving you. It's a little difficult here, but that's what Paul is saying when he says, um, we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. That is, all of us died to sin when we were saved. Uh, we died to the self-life. We died to sin, the power of sin, and so forth. And uh, he died so that we shouldn't live for ourselves, but that we should live for him that was raised from the dead. And we've talked about this death to sin a number of times already in this, this uh, class. Uh, the Bible is, spends a lot of time explaining that. Uh, Paul talks about it a lot, like Romans 6. What should we say? Should we go on sinning so grace may increase? By no means. We, those, uh, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And what that means is that when we were saved, we were regenerated, born again. And the power of sin was broken 
the unsaved person is under sin. They're under the power of sin. Uh, sin the sin nature dominates what they do, more or less. Uh, sometimes people are more corrupt than others, obviously. Some are more corrupt, some are less. But still, sin dominates their, their lives. And uh, everything is done from that perspective, ultimately. And so salvation, regeneration, being born again, one of the, one of the aspects of that, uh, one of the blessings of that, Paul says, is that this power of sin to dominate us and control us is broken. Not that we still don't uh, have a problem with sin. We're still sinful, but we're not dominated by sin. We have a new nature verse uh, Romans 6, 7, and 8, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. He, he talks about, he means from the dominion of sin, from the overruling sin as a ruler, as a ruling power. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe we also live with him. Colossians 2, 20, since you die with Christ, the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you belong to the world, do you submit to its rule? Plus three, before you died, then your life is hidden. So Paul talks a lot about this death to sin. We died to sin so that we can walk in newness of life. That's the regenerated life. Slavery to sin has been ended, and now we should be devoted to Christ and the church, as he emphasizes quite a bit in Romans 6. And so the outcome of the Christian self-denial is a Christ-centered life filled with concern for others. That's what Paul is suggesting here. This is what true salvation produces. It's what it produced in his life. And of course, he's hoping it will be manifest in their lives. So Paul is talking about his ministry, how it persuaded men from a proper motivation. He talks about his motivation. The love of Christ compels him. And uh, therefore, that's why he's doing what he's doing, serving others, serving Christ. The message of Paul's ministry, verses 16 through 21. He says, and so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, even Christ, we do so no longer. So since Paul's conversion... So from now on, since he was converted and experienced this death to the dominion and power of sin in his life, Paul ceased to make superficial personal judgments, which is regarding people from a worldly point of view, just based on external circumstances. So Paul no longer primarily viewed people in terms of nationality or ethnicity. Uh, he, he looked at people in terms of their spiritual status. That's the way we should be thinking about people. What is their spiritual status? Uh, of course, for a Jew like him and Jews, the primary concern was Jew or Gentile. You know, what are you? Well, that wasn't important to Paul anymore so much. What was important to him was whether one is a Christian or one is an unbeliever. That's what he was concerned about. And so individuals, when he approached individuals, that's how he thought about it. When he thought about various events, 
individuals and events are seen in light of this new creation that he talks about in verse 17. And so uh, along with this new point of view, he you know, tells us here that he repudiated completely as being totally erroneous his former view of Christ. You know, We once regarded Christ from this worldly point of view. Uh, Paul had this view of Christ before his conversion that Jesus was sort of a messianic pretender, clearly a messianic pretender. And he thought that he was a dangerous man and his followers should be eliminated. Remember, he talks about that in the book of Acts when he's giving his testimony at one point. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible, Acts 26, 9 through 11, to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem on the authority of the chief priest. I put many of the Lord's people in prison and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished and I tried to force them to blaspheme. And I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. So <laughs> Paul says that was the view I had of Jesus and this Christianity and so forth. But now he's come to recognize Jesus as the divinely appointed menace, uh, Messiah who had whose death had brought life, you know. His death brought life to Paul and to the Corinthians. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. So the second consequence, therefore, of the death and resurrection of Christ is that whenever a person comes to be part of the body of Christ by faith, there is a new act of creation on God's part. One set of conditions or relationships has passed out of existence. The old has gone, another set is here to stay. So we're talking here about a metaphor, a figure of speech for regeneration. Regeneration is the theological term uh, that theologians use. And the Bible has different metaphors for that. One of them is to being born again. You must be born again. That's a figure of speech for, you know, regeneration. Another one is this new creation. We're like a new creation. We've been regenerated, born again. I say here, the old is the old unregenerate way of life. The old man of Romans 6, that's gone. The old's gone. We're now new people in Christ, the new man, the new person, as Paul says. The new speaks of the radical transformation produced by regeneration. And so that's how Paul was viewing people now. You know, they're either uh, unsaved or they're saved, and that, therefore they're new creations. Verse 18, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. 
So this opening phrase of verse 18, all this is from God, refers back to the new attitudes of verse 16 that he had about people, how he thought of people, and the new creation that's come through regeneration. Thus, Paul is attributing his changed perspective to God, who did two things for him. First, he reconciled him. He reconciled Paul to himself through Christ, he says. He reconciled us to himself through Christ. And second, he gave him the ministry of reconciliation. He has committed to us this message of reconciliation. What do we mean by this reconciliation? Um, so uh, we, we, could, we, we might say reconciliation is God's work. It's God's act based on the death of Christ uh, where God's displeasure against sinners like us is appeased. The enmity, the state of, of uh, war <laughs> between us and God is removed and we're restored to a proper relationship. So if, uh, you know, we look at salvation as the broader term, Paul uses a lot of terms, a lot of figures sometimes to talk about various aspects like, you know, regeneration, uh, conversion, adoption, uh, union with Christ, uh, redemption. So redemption, you remember, is the term that is used uh, of slaves. Slaves are redeemed, you're purchased. Redeemed to mean, means to purchase. So uh, Paul emphasizes that aspect. Salvation can be looked upon as God purchasing us out of the slave market of sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. <laughs> the power of sin is broken. And so he uses these various words to try to emphasize all that's a compass when we say we are saved. And one of them, of course, is a reconciliation. He says in Romans 5, 10, and 11, for if when we were God's enemies, so that's the point of reconciliation. We were enemies. We were sinners. We were rebellious. Uh, there was this state of war between us and God. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, to him, through the death of his son, and we were. So the, Christ's death paid the penalty for our sins. So what separated us now has been taken care of. Uh, the, sin, the sins that we committed against God have now been paid for. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Saved completely now. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through Christ Jesus, through whom we've now, re now received reconciliation. So scripture makes it clear, if we looked at all these texts about reconciliation, that it, uh, that it was mankind that God reconciled to himself. God has reconciled us, as we saw in verse 18. He's 
he took the initiative by sending his son to die for Christ and remove this barrier that separated man and God. So he reconciled us to himself. Uh, there's a sense in which this reconciliation was mutual. Uh, Christ was God's agent in the reconciliation through Christ in Christ, we're told here. And reconciliation involves the non-imputation of trespasses, that is forgiveness, which is uh, complemented by the imputation of righteousness. That's to think about justification. So one of the wonderful things about salvation is now that we are and we have peace with God. So that's a way of describing reconciliation. Now we have peace with God. We're no longer uh, at, we know, where there's no longer a war between us and God. We're no longer enemies. We were God's enemies before. We were at war with God. And so now that, that has been healed. That breach has been healed through the death of his son. Now, most people don't realize that, you know, they think, you know, hey, I don't bother God. God doesn't bother me. But that's just not the way it is. <laughs> you're, you're an enemy of God if you're not a Christian. And the outcome of that is not going to be good. Verse 20. Uh, we are therefore ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you in Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Paul says it was if God was issuing a personal and direct invitation through him and other preachers to their hearers to enter into the benefits of the reconciliation already achieved by Christ. This message of reconciliation is to be found in Paul's words. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And that's what we're doing uh, as we present the gospel. We're imploring people to be reconciled to God by accepting the sacrifice of Christ uh, on their behalf. Verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What an important verse. Paul now explains the how of reconciliation. How did this, how was this reconciliation possible? How was this war brought to an end? How did we achieve peace? Here's what the Homer Kent says uh, in his commentary. Here is the essence of what the gospel is all about. God the Father made Jesus, who was not unwilling in any sense, and it was absolutely sinless to be sin for us. It must be noted that God did not make him a sinner. God does not make anyone a sinner. For then it would not be true that Christ had no sin. So um, Paul says he made, uh, he made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us. Um, and he says he had no sin. Now, you know, there's lots of verses that, that emphasize the fact that Jesus was sinless without sin himself. 
First uh, Peter two twenty two that quotes Isaiah fifty three nine. He committed no sin, talking about the the servant uh, of God and so forth and his sacrifice. He did no committed no sin. First um, John um, three five in him is no sin, and Hebrews fourteen he did not sin. All very clear. Um, and so what we have here is what the theologians call imputation. Um, the sin with which Christ is identified here was totally external to him. It was alien to him. And that's true of the righteousness that we get from God. It's alien to us. <laughs> uh, so that's what we talk about in justification. We are declared righteous. Martin Luther called this alien righteousness. Well, this is alien sin for Christ. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. God imputed to him the penalty for our sin. It was imputed. He was counted to be a sinner, even though he was sinless. He was counted to be, imputed to be a sin, a sinner, so that we might be counted as righteous. And again, that's this whole doctrine of justification. Um, Christ, of course, was without any acquaintance with sin. Um, uh, he never had any sinful attitude or he never committed a sinful act himself. He was totally apart from sin, but the penalty for our sin was imputed, counted to him so that he could suffer and die and pay the penalty for that sin. I say here, however, Christ was made to be sin in the sense that he was treated as if he were a sinner, becoming the object of God's wrath. That's another doctrine that Paul talks about in Romans 3 called propitiation. He was the propitiation of God's wrath. He propitiated God's wrath. He took that upon him, bearing the penalty and guilt of sin. Sin was imputed to him. The glorious purpose of the Father's act in making Christ to be sin was that believers should become the righteousness of God in Christ. Um, Paul doesn't say that we were made righteous, but that we become through Christ, the righteousness of God. Uh, Paul is talking about here something judicial. It's, this is our justification. He's not, we, we become, we have imputed to us the righteousness of God. Now, God is interested in us becoming righteous in actuality. And that's what we call sanctification. In sanctification, we're being made righteous. But justification, we are declared or accounted the righteousness of Christ is put to our account, and that's how we can enter heaven. We could never enter heaven based upon our own righteousness. Now, of course, the Roman Catholic Church insists that you, in order to get into heaven, it's because of your own righteousness. Righteousness must, must be infused. This is at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. This is what brought about the, the break with Rome. 
was that Luther taught righteousness is imputed to us. The Roman Catholic Church teaches it must be infused in us. And so therefore, you have to become righteous to enter heaven. There are people in this life who are righteous enough to get to heaven. They're saints and they go, they go to heaven, but the rest of us will have to go to purgatory in the Roman Catholic system to have sin removed so that we can be righteous enough to enter heaven. But of course, that's a false doctrine, terrible doctrine. Uh, the truth is that the glorious doctrine of justification is that God imputes to us the righteousness of Christ, and that makes us acceptable in God's sight, that reconciles us, removes God's wrath, and enables us to immediately come into his presence. Well, we're talking here about the character of Paul's ministry. And uh, the last thing here we want to look at is um, service to God involved great hardship. Service to God involved great hardship. Paul begins here before he actually starts talking about these hardships a lot. He talks about, he wants to urge, uh, he wants to admonish and urge the Corinthians to again receive his ministry. Now he's talked about this before, but now he's going to reemphasize it. Verse one, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. So before giving a list of hardships that had characterized his ministry, Paul first exhorted his readers about their response. This admonition is based on the truths explained in verses 5 through 11. Uh, as we said, God in Christ has made, made salvation. Uh, he, he dealt with sin. God dealt with sin and made our salvation possible. And so Paul and his co-workers... Uh, had been chosen by God, Paul says, as ambassadors to convey this good news of the outstanding grace of God to mankind everywhere. So Paul regarded him and his associates as working together with God, God's co-workers, as God's co-workers, we urge you. I say here, building on the fact that he was God's co-worker in proclaiming reconciliation Paul added the warning that his readers should not receive God's grace in vain. This is probably one of Paul's familiar warnings to Christians urging perseverance. Remember, this is the doctrine of perseverance, that the scriptures teach that we are eternally secure, but we, are, we, we also must, and we will, if we're eternally secure, continue in faith. We will persevere in faith. We are kept by the power of, Peter says, First Peter 2, says we are kept by the power of God through faith. So God keeps us, but he doesn't keep us apart from faith. We don't just deny Christ. No, we, we're kept through faith. And so there are these constant sort of warnings that Paul issues that you and I need to be careful we can't just live a sinful lifestyle and say, well, I don't care. I'm going to heaven anyway. No, we have to uh, be concerned about our conduct. He tells the Corinthians later on, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. 
do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? So we have to examine our lives, our faith. None of us are perfect, but, you know, those who live a sinful lifestyle, uh, who don't repent, that's very serious stuff, very serious stuff. Uh, and it's very hard to tell sometimes what people are doing. It's hard to tell because people fall away. They backslide. They go into sin for some time. Sometimes I just had a conversation with a friend of mine, uh, another professor who uh, I've known for many years and retired, but his son is living a very sinful lifestyle and he's concerned about this. We're talking about perseverance quite a bit. And I sent him a lot of material on this subject just because his son is living a very sinful lifestyle, of course, raised in a Christian home, but doesn't seem to have any real guilt or sense of sin about what he's doing. And that's troubling. That's terrifying. <laughs> First Corinthians 15, one and two. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you're saved. If, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. So the second Corinthians six, one here goes with the following verses, which will form an appeal for the Corinthians to follow up their initial act of belief and acceptance of the grace of God with consistent Christian life. And in the first epistle of the Corinthians and here, there are things in some of the Christians' lives at Corinth that are troubling to Paul that would make you question whether you know, they have believed in vain. It's not genuine faith. So he wants them to follow up with a consistent Christian life, and in particular by their acceptance of his ministry and by receiving him into their hearts. If they're really true Christians, they should be able to see that he's a genuine apostle and they should accept his ministry. Verse two, for he says in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. To emphasize the seriousness and urgency of his appeal and to highlight the privilege of the present and the danger of procrastination, Paul quotes Isaiah 49, 8, and then applies the passage to the age of grace. In its original context, the, the quotation belongs to a section of Isaiah 49, where the Lord directly addresses his servant who had been despised and abhorred by the nation. Remember the servant song, servant passage in Isaiah 49 and following, speaking of the Messiah and so forth, promising him vindication, that is the servant, before men in due time and calling on him to carry out the work of restoration after the return from the exile. Uh, the point is here, you know, if, if you're looking at the Old Testament quotation, that uh, the time of the return of the exiles can be looked upon as a day of salvation. Their return is sort of a day of salvation. If that's true, then the time when God has acted in Christ to reconcile the world to himself is the greatest day of salvation. 
Now is the time. This is the, this is the day. If that was a day, boy, this is really the day of salvation when God's favor is shown to men. How unthinkable that people should, as we saw in verse 1, receive the grace of God in vain. Uh, remember Hebrews, tw- uh, Hebrews 2, 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Well, now Paul gets into the hardships encountered in performing his ministry. Remember, that's how this thing started off here. But he, he starts with an appeal for them to be sure they don't receive the grace of God in vain. And now he's going to finish up here in this chapter with speaking about the various hardships he endured in his ministry. But I see it is 8.03 here. So let me stop here for tonight. Thank you for your attention. Though I really couldn't see what you were doing behind my back, but I will cut this off and then I will see that all of you are